This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again, friends, to the Equip Podcast and to the last of our three-part series that we're doing on a moral revolution happening in the West. If you haven't listened already, part one, we used the book The Air We Breathe by Glenn Shrivener and just talked about the moral foundations that Christianity brought to the West. Part two, our last podcast, we talked about how when we have such firm foundations built on a Judeo-Christian architecture, why do we see those changing so rapidly right now? And at least part of the shift we pointed to was a disappearance, at least in America, of what we could call nominal Christianity. Folks who would check the box on a survey saying, I'm a Christian, even if they're not necessarily born again. While those folks may not be born again, they were providing a part, kind of a moral constituency, a group of people who who had a common set of values that they held to. When they leave the landscape of the West, it provides some challenges. Well, part three, we want, we want to ask this question, pardon me there, of with this moral revolution happening, how can we be faithful in the strange new world in which we live? I'm taking that term, strange new world, from a book by Carl Truman of the same title. Um, it's just excellent analysis of the the factors philosophically and otherwise that led to this rapidly changing moral landscape in the Western world. But the question for today is less of how we got here, but more how we're to live now that we find ourselves here. If we find ourselves in a strange new place, if we find ourselves as American Christians even, for maybe the first time not in a moral majority of any sort or a majority of any sort, but in the cultural minority, How is it that we're to live with faithfulness? And I want to, again, stress to you, I think hugely here that we need to look to the example of the exile, of the early church, which was in no way a moral majority in the Roman Empire, but look to their pattern of faithfulness in the book of Acts, in the letters and epistles of Paul and 1 Peter. We need to look to those foundational texts to guide us and to anchor us, where 1 Peter is going to call us again and again not to respond with anger, to think that the suffering that we have is something strange, but instead to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while we do good. The question is, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to put put forward kind of for you three big challenges that we have as we look at faithfulness in this strange new world, but then kind of two big places of hope. So, three big challenges, but two big hopes that I have underlying uh, my heart even today. So, let's talk about the challenges of faithfulness in this strange new world of the changing moral landscape of the West, a world where We have gender confusion, where we have moral questions about what justice looks like, where all sorts of what we would have assumed to be true has changed. There's three big challenges that I see and then two big prayers. So challenge number one is this. As Christians, to be faithful today, we're going to have to embrace a challenge of a new way of evangelism. The challenge of a new way of evangelism. Let me first give a definition. Evangelism is how we share the good news of Jesus. And the old way of evangelism, I'm going to use, I'm going to kind of characterize this with the, maybe the old four spiritual laws that they used in Campus Crusade for Christ back in the day, right? That began with this idea, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
you know, and then it kind of built from there. Or maybe you could use, I grew up using the bridge diagram where there's a, a loving creator God, but I'm separated from him by my sins. And there's this giant kind of gulf between me and God because of my sin. How can the gap between me and God be crossed while well, I need a savior in Jesus? All of those ways of sharing the good news of Jesus, they're still true and very helpful. But they were built off of an idea that the person you were talking to had A, some conception of God, and B, some conception that they were a sinner. Okay? In other words, I call that the old style of evangelism a connect-the-dots evangelism. Like people had somewhere in their brains kind of a point, a dot that said, there is a creator who made everything. And then point two, they had another dot that said, and I'm guilty. I don't do everything right. I'm far from God. And then point three, there must be some way to get from where I am to where God is. The point now in this new, strange new world is that there are no dots in people's head. Um, There's no assumption that there's a creator in anyone's head. There's no assumption that sin exists in anyone's head. In fact, sin anymore is seen as like a psychological disorder that I would feel guilt. I got to get rid of not my sin, but I got to get rid of feeling bad. You know, I got to start to feel good about myself. I need to come out of the closet. I need to be affirmed. I need somebody to celebrate me. What are we doing culturally? We're dealing with our sin, not by confession, but by celebration. Okay, so friends, the old way of doing evangelism that could assume a God, that could assume a moral foundation, that won't exist anymore. Okay, in other words, even certain tools we used, Think of the altar call where people came forward to give their life to Christ. Well, largely that tool was built to pull people from a nominal Christian background to becoming committed Christian followers of Jesus. We don't have nominal Christian background people at nearly the percentage we had in the past. So how are we going to have to do evangelism in the strange new world? Well, okay, here's my counterintuitive answer. Um, We need to get rid of any sort of hyped-up, showy, gimmicky garbage, and we just need to verse by verse clearly and powerfully explain the teaching of Scripture. Don't push for a decision quickly until you've laid foundations fully. Let people sit under the teaching of God's Word. In other words, I don't want us to get cuter. I want us to get clearer. The method to win the West back will not be laser show Christianity, but it will be letting the Word of God speak for itself. This is just a, you can hear a little edge to me here. This is like a plea of my life to people. They often ask, what is it that makes Salt Company fruitful as a college ministry? How is it that Cornerstone and Salt have seen hundreds and hundreds of adults baptized? And friends, it's not gimmicky stuff. Gimmicks work to get people to come to church who want to be there. I had somebody say, man, I bet it's your music that draws people to Jesus. And I was like, dude, we play Christian music. Do you know any non-Christian people that listen to Christian music? Do you know anyone? My neighbors who don't know Jesus are not impressed by contemporary Christian music, you know? They're not going to walk in someplace here casting crowns and fall on their face and worship. That stuff works on Christians, not on non-Christians. The challenge of evangelism is we can't assume that people are like, quote-unquote, 
pre-Christian. You know, like they're, they're just primed to become a Christian if you just push them over the edge. They're not there. They don't have those foundations. And so, if anything, we have to get clearer about the good news of Jesus. We need to make sure that we explicitly show people this is what the Bible says. Let the truth come from the Word. So, challenge one, we're going to have to take longer to do evangelism. We're going to have to lay deeper foundations of the gospel because the dots that we used to be able to rely on to connect people to Jesus don't exist anymore. We're going to have to draw the dots to get them there. Okay, here's the second challenge we're going to have to embrace. In this strange new world, I'm going to call it the challenge of discipleship. The challenge of what it takes not just to make a decision for Christ, but to follow Christ for a lifetime. For a lifetime. And on discipleship, I'm going to suggest we're going to have to teach people, A, doctrinal foundations, but also, B, basic Christian living foundations. Okay? By doctrinal foundations, I mean we are going to have to go back to the creeds and the catechisms of the faith, and we will have to lay the basic foundations. God as creator, the Trinity, man made in God's image but sinful, will have to reteach the doctrines of how salvation happens. We will have to lay basic Christian doctrinal foundations for those who come to faith in Jesus, because they don't have that architecture already in their head. They weren't pre-Christian, they were completely not Christian. And so anymore, we're going to have to go back and lay deeper doctrinal foundations. But not only that, you have to lay moral foundations. You can't assume, for instance, if somebody comes to faith in Jesus, that they kind of know how to parent their kids. They didn't grow up in a Christian world. I I was talking to somebody recently, and there was something uh, that Crystal and I did in disciplining a child, and they said, how in the world did you know to do that? And I thought, literally the instant they said it to me, I thought in my head, how in the world would you not know to do that? How in the world would you not know that? Well, the answer for me was, I grew up watching a faithfully committed, you know, parents, my mom and dad, live that out in front of me. And before them, I had watched my grandparents. I had a generational Christian legacy, which meant I didn't know what to do that was wrong. As a parent, the only patterns that I had seen laid down were good patterns, not abusive, broken patterns. Therefore, it was normal for me to just act out what I had already seen. I had a script for how to live that was played out in front of me by the pattern of my parents' lives. You will not be able to assume that in the strange new world. This this has been reinforced to me time and time again, but is inside of the ministry of Salt Company. When I was uh, directing Salt Company, I had the privilege of discipling young men and women who were just coming to faith in Jesus. One of the young men that I was working with, we were talking about what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus at Iowa State as a university student, and he said, well, one thing I know I can't do is date. And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? I, I hope at some point you you know, meet and marry a Christian girl in your life. And he said, listen, Mark, I, I don't think you can do that in a pure way. I don't even think it's possible. Because the all of the examples he had of dating involved sexual compromise. We had to reteach for him how to honor a young woman that you liked. I had to teach him how, you know, like things that Christians can do to express affection that are pure and good. 
that's not just a doctrinal foundation, that's a basic like Christian living foundation. And I'm going to ex- kind of push this one layer further. If we have a challenge in discipleship, it's not just a challenge in laying the foundations properly, it's a challenge on how you can lay foundations in a world that is so full of noise. Guys, there's so much information out there. Think of how many podcasts you could have listened to. Not the Equip podcast. I mean, there's hundreds, and they're good, but there's good in with garbage. You know what I mean? It's like a needle in a haystack of garbage on the internet. There's some incredible information out there, but you have to sort through so much noise. So the problem of discipleship nowadays isn't just bad information, it's too much information. It's so much information. People can't sort through the garbage to get to the good. And so we're going to have to, as churches, not only teach, but also I'm calling it a ministry of curating. You you know what curation is? Like a museum curator chooses from all of the options out there to select the best choices. Part of what I do in the Equip podcast, the reason I mention the books that I mention is I'm trying to give you information on the best resources because there's so much trash that's out there. As pastors, you're going to have to help your people sift through the noise to get to the good because our problem isn't just bad morality, it's too many ideas. It's noise. So we have a challenge of evangelism. You can't rely on the old way. You have to do a new way, which is not a cute way or a novel way, but laying foundations in Scripture. The challenge of discipleship, again, this isn't cute. This is long-term, slow, steady work to lay doctrinal foundations, moral foundations against the backdrop of internet noise. But then I think we also have a third challenge, evangelism challenge, discipleship challenge, This one is going to be the challenge of living as a faithful Christian in a fractured democratic society. Okay, just pardon my philosophical musing on politics for one second. The big question, if you are a political theorist in all of this, is can a democracy hold together that doesn't have an agreed-upon moral center? In America, when we began, remember... We, we had a common consensus on right and wrong. We were united with a foundational moral vision. Now, for the first time in the Western societies, we're beginning to live in the midst of what we could call a true pluralism. Pluralism, where there are multiple worldviews of people. People who see the world through a Judeo-Christian lens. People who reject that entirely and see the world through kind of a progressivist lens. People who see the world through a Buddhist lens. People who see the world through a Muslim lens. Multiple pluralistic perspectives. And these are worldviews which aren't entirely compatible with each other. So if you can imagine uh, two circles that represent a moral vision of two people. In the past in America, the circles were overlapped a ton. But now as you pull them apart, the area of overlap feels like the sliver of overlap is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Can you have a democratic society where people don't agree upon the common goods at the moral center? Well, Increasingly, to be honest with you, on both the right in the Christian nationalist movement and Stephen Miller's arguments and on the left in the kind of critical race theory crowd, both the right and the left are making the same argument. They're saying liberal democracy. By that, I don't mean liberal like, you know, far left liberal. I mean liberal like the basic ideas of ordered liberties, that basically liberal democracy is not going to work. 
And so both right and left now are not trying to argue for a democracy that makes space for everyone. They're trying to push forward, you know, angry moral speech codes to shut down everyone they don't like, a sort of might makes right sort of approach to the way in which you live, where the, the party in power basically imposes their will on the people on the other side because they're right and those people are wrong. And so who cares what they think? You see what's happening there? If you don't have a common vision of morality, how do you hold together? Well, I can't solve that problem today, and nor do I even think I can solve it. My question actually isn't, how do I solve it? My question as a Christian is, I owe ultimate allegiance to King Jesus, and I want to display the values of his kingdom and the world in which I live now. And so I'm not called to solve democracy's problems. Ultimately, I think political salvation schema are bankrupt. The question of and the challenge of living in a pluralistic society for a Christian is this. How is it that it, I'm supposed to express love of my neighbor when actually my neighbor just may outright hate the values that I stand for? How do I love those people? I think the challenge in a pluralistic society is whether the church will see their biggest calling is to be a political voting block or whether the church will see their truest calling to be a embassy of the kingdom of God displaying the countercultural virtues of Jesus, even if they have no political power. The challenge here is not so much a challenge of if we can hold political power, it's a challenge to our heart of whether we'll love our neighbor, whether we'll work for the good of people that we disagree with radically, whether we're going to be willing to actually lay our lives down for our enemies, not just for our friends. That will be a great challenge for us. It's very hard to do that when you feel like you're in the minority, when you feel like someone is pressing up against things that you treasure. That will be a challenge. So we have the challenge of new evangelism, a challenge of new discipleship that's going to force the church to lay deeper foundations, but also a challenge of living in a pluralistic society that will force us to have deeper and purer motives of love. Will we live up to that? But I think not only are there challenges, there's also hope. In this moral revolution, I'm going to give you two places of hope. The first place of hope is this statement, unbelief is ultimately insane. There's an insanity to unbelief. God is the God of the whole universe. And this world works because he designed it. If you go counter to his good designs, no matter how brilliant you may seem as a person, ultimately you are building a house of cards that will fall apart. Unbelief, the rejection of the creator and his ways, doesn't work because God actually exists. So here's what happens. It means there's an inherent, not only insanity to un unbelief, there's inherent instability to a moral code that's based on something other than God. Guys, look to the secular humanist revolutions of the 20th century. It was the bloodiest century. Guys, the idea that communism could produce a society, right, where people would band together and each person would bring their thing and no one would, no, it produced the worst atrocities known to mankind because apart from God, a system of government, a system of living doesn't work because God is real. So one of my hopes is, and I'm seeing this over and over and over again, in college students and younger kids, the next generation, they've grown up watching the ideas that a modern world is putting forward for how they're supposed to govern their identity and who they're supposed to be 
And what they're figuring out is that the modern world's salvation is bankrupt. They need something better. There's an insanity, an instability to unbelief. And so the moral revolution that we're watching happen is a moral revolution in the West that won't work, and it will leave people hungry for something different. So I have hope, because I'm seeing all the time people who are tired and weary and burned out by a moral code of a modern world that doesn't work, and we can say, hey, would you want to come to Jesus? He'll give you rest for your souls. They find in Christ the person they were meant to live for and the way they were meant to be. Here's my second place of hope. I have hope because the Spirit of God is at work. Tim Keller recently wrote, American Christianity is due for a revival. It's the title of his piece in The Atlantic. I think it would be incredibly helpful for all of us to move toward that, to read it, and to pray. You know, it's most often that God brings revival, a fresh, brilliant light by the Spirit at the time when the darkness is the darkest. We need, right now, to pray for God's Spirit to move. Friends, when we pray for revival, man, don't let this get co-opted with political overtones. We're not praying for a political revival. We're praying for a revival of the gospel of grace. We're praying that Jesus would be made not just true, but beautiful in the hearts of people. We're praying that God would be deeply understood and known and felt and preached, and that God's Spirit would bring an awakening to people who are dead in their sins. That's what we're asking for. You see, as Christians, all the strategies in the world don't replace the power of God's Spirit. You talked about revival recently on the the podcast and used an analogy like a sailboat. God's people, in a time of revival, we're not a motorboat driving ourselves across the water. We're a sailboat. We just hoist up the sail for the wind of the Spirit to blow. That sort of power can change not only our hearts, but also Western civilization. It can change America. It can change the West. A world that finds itself actually shipwrecked on the insanity of unbelief, perhaps it would be that God's Spirit would blow in a special way and bring revival to our people in our towns and our cities and ultimately to our nation and perhaps even, Lord willing, to the world. That's a hope that we can have. So, against the challenges of a moral revolution, a strange new world, they're, they're real challenges. We need to be honest about them. We need to be honest about the shifting sands in which we are standing right now. But at the same time, oh, Christian, don't lose hope. Don't react out of fear. You don't have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love. And so lean into the hope that ultimately God's ways are best. People will see that, and God's Spirit can move in any situation. I'm hopeful that the past three weeks of this kind of reflection on the moral revolution give you some pause, some places to pray, and even just a pathway for how it might look for you to be faithful to God wherever He's called you. 